0: Hey, deserving listeners, it is just me today. Today I'm going to respond to patron Ruben's email. Ruben asked me to provide 20 personal tips for having a great life. Ruben says, Could you provide a list of 20 personal tips you offer for having a great life based on your own experience? And when I first got patron Ruben's email, I thought there's no way that I'd be able to answer that question. It's so big. And 20, you know, if you'd asked for three, I thought, well, maybe I could provide three tips, but 20, do I even have 20 tips? And would I even have one tip? It just seems too big. But then I thought, well, I'd give it a try anyway. I'm always up for a challenge. And before getting into this, I I just want to say that these tips are, they're just for me. Uh, I don't imagine that all of them, or any of them, would work for other people. So, uh, you know, I can't say that they're universal. Being a therapist is a complicated uh, profession, but one of the things that we don't usually engage in is providing tips for the general public that claim that they will improve your life or provide meaning or something. You know that that that's too personal and and. You have to take context into consideration for for everybody. So this isn't necessarily a, a professional episode, if if you know what I'm saying, based on research. Although I I do have some tips that are definitely based on research. The other thing is is I I think that the way Reuben Reuben wrote f- a, a longer email than that, and Reuben seemed to be saying or even was saying that I might have some special knowledge or special ability to lead a good life or something and I just have to say that I struggle like everybody else I'm probably no better at coping or uh, dealing with life than the average person uh, so I I the you know the notion that somehow I have some special ability or knowledge to impart on the masses of people who need tips on how to lead a better life is just not uh, supported by my experience. I can imagine how it might seem that way from the outside because, you know, you're not there with me as I go through all the, the you know, moments and difficulties of my life. And I, I don't use this podcast to, to really add, talk about that. I have my family and friends and my therapist to process that with. And I, I don't necessarily do that with you people. That sounds funny. You people out there. <laughs> um, you know, having said that, I definitely get a, an emotional, uh, I don't know, need met through the podcast for sure, which I've talked about before. But anyway. Um, also, another thing before providing these tips is that privilege and power are a major factor when trying to optimize one's life the the tips that i'm going to provide are some of them are you know further down maslow maslow's hierarchy but some of them are really higher up and if you aren't privileged and aren't in a good spot in your life com- comparative to other spots in your life or comparative to other people in your society then it's going to be very hard to even think about such things so that's just another thing i i i Every tip that i that I sort of came up with in my notes, I thought, well, you know for many people, this just wouldn't work. There's no way they could even attempt this, so that's another thing that I want to say up front rather than saying it every single time I provide one of the twenty tips for having a good life. Welcome to the Psychology and Seattle podcast. I'm your host, dr Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. I I debated whether or not this should be a patron-only episode, and I at first thought, well, that doesn't make any sense because it's not really a deep dive. But on the other hand, it's sort of a personal episode, and I tend to prefer that the more personal, to me, episodes aren't available to everyone on the planet it just feels a little weird to me so as a self-protective measure it's kind of nice to say well let's just make this one for the patrons that and there's you know something like i don't know 800 patrons or something so it's much less than seven and a half billion people The, the other thing is is i think it's been a long time since i had a patron exclusive episode by the way I am currently working on a number of deep dives and I'm also moving (laughs) and I have, and when I move, you know, all my recording equipment and notes and everything just gets completely discombobulated. And, and uh, and obviously just the act of packing everything up is, is time consuming and I still am working and still have a practice and blah, blah, blah. And I have a home practice, so I have to move all that kind of stuff. And so I I I promise you that my deep dives are. I, I'm guessing I'll have like one a week in a month or two or something, and I can't I can't wait to get into it. But I, I, I need sort of unbroken time to work on them. It's sort of like writing a book or something. I can't just sit down and uh you know. Uh, do bits and pieces it's something like the narcissistic personality sort of episode i have to i have to dedicate swaths of 8 hours that are consecutive so monday from noon to 8 and then tuesday from from 9 to 5 and then wednesday for 4 hours and then thursday i can't i can't just do 1 hour a day if that makes any sense cuz every time i get my head back into that space, it it I've kind of I it takes me a while to get back into the rhythm of things. And so I have to wait until I have the luxury of having unbroken time, which will be a bit of time. Anyway, so anyway, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, it this episode's gonna end before the rest of it goes on and if you want to hear the full episode go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast it's a way to support the podcast if you like this podcast it's really the best way you can materially really support the podcast and when you become a patron there will be uh there will be instructions on how to access the premium content And also, when you become a patron, know that you don't have to listen to the commercials, which I would imagine would be a nice benefit. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, patrons. Super cool of you to become a patron and, you know, I don't know how to say this. Um, Support the podcast materially. It's really wonderful when you do that. Warms the cockles. What are the cockles? Are cockles in your throat or are they in your stomach? Anyway, uh, so here are my list of 20 tips for having a good life. Again, remember my caveat that I have no special knowledge. I struggle like anyone else, and I am just as lost as everyone else. But I will say that as a 47-year-old person, I have spent a good amount of time in my life th- trying to think about these things not in a formalized manner really but you know I've been in therapy since I was 19. I mean that alone is kind of odd, right? I'm 19, I'm in college, I'm hanging out around with a bunch of other college douchebags at University of Washington and I'm just like, "You know what? I really need to go to therapy. I really I really want to contemplate life." And I'm here to tell you that statistically and anecdotally, it's not a very common thing for 19-year-old boys to do. I have kept a journal since I was 13 years old. I have a, a sort of a, a love for talking about things. And so that's why when I decided to become a therapist when I was 24, everything kind of made sense because I was like, you know what, I've I've really had a, a theme in my life of thinking about life and the meaning of life and why we're here and we have limited time and, and how can I have the best life possible and how can I enhance the lives of those around me in, in the best way possible? Cause that in turn enhances my life. So, so I've really, you know, thought of, and obviously being a therapist and then being in therapy and um, I don't know. So I, uh, and I think being a helper, being a therapist for 20 some years I think over time you really do realize the core common issues that people face and and the things that you can do to uh, work on them. I suppose it's similar to any other profession. I, I often bring up the profession of plumbing, which I I don't know why, but I th- I just I just love plumbing. I when I was a um, when I was renovating my house. That I owned, uh, I don't know. That was probably ten years ago. I it was such a project. It Took years. I did all this stuff on my own. I had no idea what I was doing. And one of the things that I tackled was how to how to sweat pipes. How to how to do plumbing. And I there was no YouTube or YouTube didn't it was nothing like it is today. I mean now I'm sure all you had to do was go YouTube. How do you do plumbing and how do you sweat pipes? And they they would there would be like hundreds of videos of people explaining it really well well back then it that did not 10 years ago that did not exist well was it 10 years ago well, maybe it would have been 15 years ago anyway the point is, is it didn't exist and i had to talk to people and have it ex- verbally explain it to me people who didn't really know what they were doing mm-hmm. and then i would go home and i would try it and it wouldn't work it was all trial and error and you know imagine that uh, you know, 34 year old guy trial and erring, erroring his, his plumbing in his house. And I, uh, learned to very much respect plumbing plumbers because eventually I had to hire a plumber <laughs> because I, for some of the work I was like, I, I, I I'm going to screw this up. I, I did some of it. Okay. But this is not going to go well. And the the plumbing I did do just looked horrible. You know, like the, uh, I can't really ex- explain it, but, the uh, The pipes joined. The joints to the pipes looked really janky. But anyway, so and then I would watch the plumbers as they came over, and I would watch them do it. And they would do it in like, you know, one percent the amount of time. They're just like, dick, 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 you know, sweat, sweat, you know, bang, you know. And I was just like, man, how do you? So I, anyway, my point is is that for plumbers, they probably, if you ask the plumber, what are some tips? for a house or for how to do plumbing or for keeping care of your house or blah, blah, blah. You know, they've learned over time that the common problems that people run into with the plumbing in their house, and I suppose being a psychotherapist is similar. Anyway, so number one, the order the order I have these in it is kind of in order of priority. Uh, I mean, it's hard to rank these things, but I'm, I'm starting with the most important. And the most important tip for a good life is get good sleep. Eight hours or more, Uh, you know, some people can survive on seven, but often I think most people can, you know, they really do need eight. And often when, when I shoot for eight, I really only get like seven or seven and a half. So if you shoot for eight, you know, sometimes you're not going to get eight, right? The other thing is, is going to bed at the same time every night. Some people know this, you know, they're just like, well, duh, that's obvious. Or that's just how their biorhythms work. It's like, well, yeah, I can't stay up past 10. My body just falls asleep. Well, I'm not like that. And I learned, I guess, the hard way over decades that I, if I didn't, you know, so before, before about five years ago, I pretty much treated sleep like, I don't know, like, um, like. Well, some nights I'll get six, and some nights I'll get seven, and some nights I'll get four, and some nights I'll go to bed at three in the morning, and some nights I'll go to bed at midnight, and some nights I'll go to bed at five in the morning because I, I'm such a night owl. And I just thought, like, well, you know, it'll all work out. It, it, you know, it, it didn't. And I think I walked around in a state of sleep deprivation. For a lot of the time, and when I when I started experimenting with sleep and I said, you know what, if I go to bed at the same time every night and try to get eight hours, uh, my life is so much better. I have so much more energy. And the other thing about sleep deprivation that I think a lot of people don't know and I didn't know is that when you're sleep deprived, you're not necessarily tired. Um you know, for instance, when I do get eight hours of sleep, it's not like I don't get tired. I still, I still get tired. I still will take naps. Um, you know, even when I'm getting really good sleep and I'm, I'm, you know, exercising and I'm eating right and all that kind of stuff, there are still times when you know, around two o'clock in the afternoon, I, I need to take a half hour nap. So it's not necessarily – Tiredness isn't necessarily a good barometer for whether or not you, you're you're getting good sleep at night. What is a good barometer is the amount of energy you have, the mood you're in, fatigue, your general health, uh, anxiety, your uh, sharpness, your cognitive sharpness. And that I definitely notice. Uh, I uh, Like last night, I got a good uh, – let's see. I went to bed at about uh, 1-ish and woke up at 8. So, you know, tried to go to bed at midnight. Ended up going to bed at one. Um, I try to go to bed between about midnight or one, and I I try to wake up at eight o'clock every day. And I know for some people, you're like, "Oh my god, eight o'clock—that's sleeping in." Well, like I said, I you know I don't go to bed at ten. So, Um, but anyway, my point is is that I today feel extremely sharp, uh, as sharp as I can be. You know, my brain is working good. That's why I'm doing the podcast right now because I I feel like I can speak clear and think as quick as as possible for me. And so uh, getting a good eight hours of sleep, going to bed at the same time every night, protecting your sleep too, like from animals. A lot of of people have pets today. I have pets. I love my pets. But I will be damned if my pets are going to ruin my sleep. And the thing I say to myself is, I feed them, I shelter them, I love them, I take them to the vet, I extend their life like two or three times their normal life that they would have on the street, you know. And I give them so much, and they give me a lot too, but I'll be damned if they're going to ruin my sleep and take away my energy and take away my vitality and take away my health. I mean, you you live a shorter lifespan when you screw with your sleep. And so, pets jumping up on the bed or trying to wake me up in the morning and stuff. Like I do not tolerate that and, or really from anybody for that matter. And so I, you know, get angry about that. And I feel like a lot of people are just like, well, you know, what are you going to do? The cat wants to do this and that. And I'm, and you know, animals will get used to stuff. Now, some animals and some children are special needs. And, you know, so again, that's this matter of privilege I was talking about earlier, but, I have I have my my animals all my animals are on some level are special needs and of course I feel bad for them and of course I feel uh, you know responsible or care to help them but at the same time if I'm going to be a good owner or you know pet owner uh, then I need my sleep and I find that when I draw boundaries with my animals at night they get used to it I have a cat that would just would die to sleep with me in bed every night. She, she, you know, like when I, when she has the chance, she will sneak onto the bed. She'll move so slow and you can tell she, she knows she's in trouble and she'll jump up on the bed and then she'll, she'll ever slow. So it's actually more annoying when she does this because it's just like, just, just get it over with. Like, cause I can sense you like creeping up toward my face you know she wants to sleep right next to my face you know she that's that's heaven to her but to me i'm like i i need my sleep i need to wake up in the morning i need i need to be fresh and and can you know consider sleep like getting a good diet or i don't know like drinking water right you wouldn't say like well, some days I drink water and some days I don't. You just know if you don't drink water, like your entire biology gets thrown off. Well, sleep's the same way. And now again, some of you out there know that. But anyway, so my number one tip for having a good life is to get good sleep. I think it really has so many good effects. And, and other things that interfere with sleep, caffeine, um, other stimulant medication, Alcohol, eating late at night, uh, stress, thinking about uh, difficult things. I find that a lot of people, I find a lot of a lot of my clients and a lot of my friends suffer from bad sleep at night. And th- what's interesting is, I just find a lot of people, and I said this before in other podcasts, but I find that a lot of people just turn to meds. They're like, "Well, Ambien or or marijuana, for that matter." It 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 helps them to fall asleep at night. But what I, what I think is like, well, fine if, if as a temporary thing, but really what you need is a, is a long-term solution. Cause if you just become dependent on that, uh, that's no good. And also uh, it, I find that eventually those things don't really work or what if you don't have them? Or what if those things start to have side effects? You know, like some people are like, well, I don't think I want to smoke pot every night. And then, they don't smoke pot one night and they can't fall asleep because their 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 body isn't used to falling asleep without it. And so there's so many other effective ways of being able to fall asleep at night. Again, this is all said from privilege. There are some people who suffer from pain or other kinds of disorders or conditions or you know mental conditions that make sleep extremely difficult. So you know um, it's easier said than done. But I have had periods of time in my life where I had mental conditions that were definitely interfering with my sleep. And I hit it head on, I made sure that I attacked it and said, you know, what do I got to do to change the way that I think, change my practices, change my mindfulness at night, change my diet, my lifestyle so that I get good sleep. Um, Again, for me, I had the privilege that it actually worked out. Okay, that's number one, get good sleep. Number two is optimize your attachments arguably this is number 1 but i just thought get good sleep would be a nice beginning optimizing your attachments i i had so, when i was sort of brainstorming all the different tips i had so many tips that were under this category and i just sort of threw them all into one category under the heading of optimize your attachments i don't really like the phrase optimize your attachments but you know pay attention to your relationships your attachment secure attachment you're you're feeling like you can trust others like you can depend on others like others and you reciprocally think about each other and look out for each other and care for each other when you are sad and struggling who do you reach out to who can you reach out to when other people are sad and suffering do they reach out to you can they reach out to you do you Have you cultivated those relationships? You need to uh, notice that you really do need attachments. One of the things that bothers me about our society today, and I'm guessing it's true in other societies, is that a lot of men today are running into problems with attachments. Uh, uh, people are running into problems with attachments. But with men, what I find is that they the, they find themselves struggling you know they're in their 20s or 30s and they're just thinking man you know i i get really angry around my spouse or i get really angry and hurt by my friends sometimes and there's this notion in the air in our society that the solution to that is to become is to meditate and to become to, to to gravitate towards buddhism or to gravitate towards mindfulness. There's nothing wrong with mindfulness. It's it's a wonderful thing. But if that's the only thing you're doing, then you're you're trying to be a robot. You're saying, "Okay, my, me and my spouse struggle sometimes, me and my friends, I get hurt, I get upset, and I get I get really angry." And so I need to be mindful, so I can stop being angry at those people. But, and, and that's a great sort of temporary coping mechanism. But the overall thing that needs to happen is you need to improve your relationships with those people and foster a more a less bothersome dependency on other people. Because a lot of people will turn to turn, turn, from, turn to mindfulness because there's this whole idea in Buddhism around detachment and not having expectations and not needing things and and as an extension of that the the notions of don't depend on other human beings to make you happy you you can be happy on your own and again Buddhist people out there would be like, well, not everyone's like that. And for sure, there's the, the wisest Buddhists understand that relationships are crucial, just like water is crucial. You know, you, as a Buddhist, you wouldn't say, I detached from my need for water. It's like, no, you still need water. Having said that, there are some Buddhist quacks out there. But anyway, the point is, is that biologically and psychologically, you thrive in within secure attachments. You cannot deny that. There are occasional people who who don't need that. And we're talking, I don't know, I'm guessing 0.001% of humans because they have some genetic disorder that makes it so that something kind of gets wacky about their attachments. But for the everyone, even psychopaths, I people will say, oh, psychopaths, they have no empathy, they don't care. Well, I, in my observation, that's true. But Deep down, they actually do still want some kind of relationship with other people. Um, and uh, now some people say, well, what about autistic people? They don't seem to care. And it's like they they care. They do. Um, and autistic people and experts will absolutely attest to that. Just because someone uh, has difficulty monitoring other human beings or – feeling other people's feelings doesn't mean that they don't have the innate need for relationships that are ongoing with other people. So anyway, my point is, is that there's just a lot of messages in our society and a, and a, that will say that you you need to not depend on other people. And there's also a lot of messages in our society that you don't really need to depend on other people. You should be able to be on your own. And I'm here to tell you that's that's hogwash. <laughs> I don't think I've said the, that word hogwash in a long time, but I like it, and it applies because it is hogwash. Uh, it, you know, hogwash. I guess that's like the water that you would wash hogs. I my um, Japanese side of my family back in the year 1910 had a farm in in uh, Central Washington, and they had hogs. And there's a bunch of funny stories about the hogs. But anyway, um, so know your attachment needs, which is a very important part of it. You need to be able to know what you need and be aware of how much you need other people and to notice when those needs come up. Let me just come up with an example of this. It's like when you are... It's late at night, and your head hits the pillow, and you start thinking about something stupid that you said that day. You're, you know, you you were with your friends or at work or something, and you're just like, oh, I can't believe I said that stupid thing. That is a time where your attachment needs are expressing themselves. And not a lot of people recognize that. They'll be like, okay, well, how, you know, what they'll say is, how, how, you know, I said that stupid thing at work. How do I avoid saying that stupid thing? Well, a solution that I have heard other people say is next time just don't say anything, right? I mean, I've I've certainly said that before uh, at about work, stupid things I've said. Uh, I'll be like, okay, next time there's a meeting, just keep your mouth shut because, you know, if you don't risk anything, nothing bad will happen. But actually, uh, if you do that all the time, that is – in a direction of detaching from other human beings that is not going to meet, meet You're not going to get your knees met and problems are going to ensue like anxiety, depression, meaninglessness, anger, uh, isolation, you know, these kinds of things. So uh, uh, notice that, Oh, right now, because I'm ruminating on this quote unquote stupid thing that I said at work, my, I must right now feel as though I am disconnected from People in my life that I want to feel connected to, and because I feel disconnected from other human beings, I my body is and my mind is, are afraid and feel disconnected, and it's expressing itself through this self-flagellation around how stupid I was when I said that. Because the alternative is that you felt very connected to the people at work that you cared about and very connected to your family and friends and when your head hits the pillow your brain doesn't really go there because you just feel connected and safe which is another thing i want to emphasize is that because of the way we evolved and the way many social animals evolved is we have we we equate attachment and connection with safety, that's why we call it secure attachment. it's a safe attachment. and when we feel disconnected, we have a general sense of of unsafety of danger because you know we're animals we're not we're not any different from we're very similar to a lizard and a fish and a you know a cat where our our brain and our biology and our DNA are very similar and, the way in which our psychological mechanisms evolved were quite rudimentary. So, when we evolved early in, uh, you know, our speciation, you know, I guess during fish times, there some mechanism evolved that said there are certain things you need to be afraid of, and because. It, it, those things are things that threaten your survivability and your ability to reproduce. And so we're going to make you afraid of this thing. So fish, when they see a bigger fish that's trying to eat them, they have a fear response, an anxiety response, which motivates action to get away from that thing. Well, when social animals started, you know, when social animals evolved, we uh, that mechanism for fear was co-opted for that Purpose. Uh, so instead of just an intellectual uh, understanding of you need to be close to other people, otherwise you'll you'll die, and and rather than inventing a whole new emotion, the you know this species just gradual ev- evolution over time just co opted the fear of being killed by a predator to uh, being the fear of being rejected and by your tribe and your group and being alone. And so we have intense fear that is is associated with insecure attachments and for being disconnected. You know, and you see this when in people's behavior when when people think they're about to die, they want they want humans to be close to them. They'll call out to their mother. Or they'll just, you know, on an airplane as they people think it's about to crash, they'll turn to the people next to them and, and bond with them somehow. It's just we have a, a, an extreme need for connection and for being with the people that love us. It makes us feel safe. And so when your head hits the pillow and you're thinking about these kinds of things, notice that. Say, oh, I, you know, I must feel insecurely attached right now i must feel disconnected from the people at work how can i cultivate a more secure relationship with those people at work now this is a very complicated topic of course it's and something that uh, might not be possible but um it's something at least you notice. And, and and a lot of people don't. Like I said, a lot of people just go, oh, well, fuck those people for judging me on what I said or or they'll they'll resolve to never, never say stupid things at work. And really that is not the point because we say stupid shit all the time. And when you are securely attached, you don't care. You know, I had a friend once that we, uh, I don't know, this is like 10 years ago. She and I, we got into kind of a, an argument. I can't remember what it was, but it was some kind of some kind of tiff between the two of us. And uh, and then later on, I wrote her or talked to her. I can't remember what, but I communicated to her somehow that I, I said, you know, are we cool? I, I know last time we talked, it was a little tense or something. And I'll never forget what she wrote back. She said, she said, Kirk, we've been friends for a long time. The chance that something like that is going to ruin our relationship is is very slim you know there's no way that uh, you know a little argument in in the context of 15 years of closeness it is going to threaten it's not going to threaten that there's no way that just that you know we would have to have 15 years of difficulty for it to threaten our relationship and that just you know really made me feel better and I think about that, you know, when I think about other kinds of tensions with other people, and uh, when people reach out to me, I I say something similar to that, you know, because I just want people to know that I care in a bigger way, you know, and so we need those, we need those attachments. It it makes us feel better, um, and and we have a biological need for it. Facilitating that, we can do that through physical affection, cuddling, sex, hugging, shaking hands, back rubs, that kind of thing. Uh, and I will prescribe this to clients. I'll say, "When was the last time you and your spouse cuddled on the couch or cuddled in bed? Just just hung out together in close proximity? How, when was the last time that happened?" And they'll be like, "Oh, geez, months ago." And I'll say. You are a, a thirsty person walking around, and you're not drinking water. <laughs> you need to drink water. Cuddling, it, it lowers the blood pressure. It regulates the nervous system. It regulates your, your digestive system. It, it regulates your um, everything, emotional system, security, everything that's why as I and I've talked about this before, so many Americans have so many pets because we're so a, a phobic about asking for physical affection or and giving physical affection in our society and not everyone's like this that we buy animals that are captives and can't get away from us and will... Not necessarily try to get away from us as we force them to cuddle with us. You know, whenever I talk about this, people always kind of chuckle because I, I think everyone has forced their pet to cuddle with them. It's like you know, you come home and you you feel disconnected and you just need that security, and so you go to your dog or your cat or something, and and you you want that physical affection and that physical security. So you grab the dog, you grab the cat, and they don't want to cuddle in that moment. <laughs> they want food, or they want to go outside, or they want to—they just want their freedom. And you're just like, no, no, no! You are now going to cuddle with me. And some animals will succumb, and some won't. And how interesting that is—that we have bought cuddle slaves. <laughs> and that the more rational plan is how can i have more physical affection with other humans and you'll see this in families you'll see families they'll all turn to the animals collectively for their physical affection needs instead of each other so um you know imagine if how how imagine how wonderful it would feel to come home after work and to have everyone in your family run to you and lick your face and jump on you and want to be with you. That feel great, right? <laughs> Just that but instead we say, well I don't need that and we have we buy dogs and the dogs do that for us. There's really no, you know, it's not really a mistake that we love dogs in America, you know, because because they evolved similarly to need social uh, uh, you know security and they dogs need atta- cats need attachment security too but uh, they evolved less so than dogs and dogs don't have culture to beat them down to act like they don't care about attachments And so dogs will express their attachment needs openly because they're not insecure, and they're not self-conscious about looking like an idiot. Whereas humans, we do. And so we suppress our attachment needs, whereas dogs do not. And we love that because the dogs just basically, we're we're basically in a pursuer relationship with our our animals. (laughs) They pursue us, and we act like we don't care. Anyway. Also, so, so these are all the several. So I had cuddling and physical affection in its own tip. Uh, but, um, so there's a lot of tips within the optimize your attachments tip for a good life. Another one is be vulnerable and ask for things directly because so many, we, we need so many things from other people. We need affection. We need someone to listen. We need someone to give us money. We need, uh, help with taking the groceries from the car to the house. And the way that we uh, can facilitate that is through being vulnerable and asking directly for something saying, hey, could you help me with the groceries? Or, hey, I'm feeling alone right now. Could you cuddle with me? Or, hey, I, I really feel like I need to vent for an hour. Can, can you listen to me? And just ask, just ask directly because your loved ones care and actually want to give you those things. And, um, but what ends up happening is people get hurt by each other over time and they, uh, two things happen. One is they get resentful and they, and they don't want to give to the other person. So even if the person does ask directly and with vulnerability, they're like screw you you didn't listen to me before so i'm not going to listen to you and the other thing that happens is people just stop asking and and they because they don't want to get hurt they they're predicting well if i ask if i if i go to my husband and say could you listen to me for an hour i'm not sure if he's going to say yes cuz i'm not sure if he really cares and so but i still need to vent so what i'll do is i'll just sit down next to him and i'll just start venting <laughs> And, and 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 the husband might not know what's happening, and, and the husband might be interpreting it differently. And whereas if you just said, look, I love you, and I depend on you for my well-being, and I really need to vent for 45 minutes, and when you let me vent and you, you listen to me, it really— Puts really makes me feel better, and I'm worried that if I don't have you to vent to tonight, I, I'm I'm not going to sleep tonight. I'm going to get in a bad mood. So you, you're really going to help me out here. That's recognizing your detachment needs. That's being vulnerable. That's recognizing your dependency needs. That's recognizing your emotional needs, and that's uh, and it's and you're asking in a way that is accurate. You're not, you know, instead of sitting down and saying like you know i need you to listen to me because you never listen to me right <laughs> you know that that's a different way of asking when you ask with vulnerability and you put yourself out on the line it evokes a, an emotional response from your spouse that you know because they care and love you and and they want to give you know when when someone falls on the street the vast majority of humans again besides psychopaths have an innate desire to help that person we, we have an innate, evolved mechanism of caring for other people who are in pain and suffering, especially when they're close to us and especially when there's a way for us to help. It, it breaks our heart when our loved ones are suffering. And if we can do something about that, how wonderful that is. And so when you're asking for something and you're asking for an attachment need, you just have to ask in a way that— Evokes that empathy response from the other person, and most people don't ask that way. In my experience, particularly my clients, because their relationships have, you know, suffered, and they come to me for help. And one of the, one of the things I almost always see, in fact, I'm guessing I have always seen it in the couples that I've treated, because again, it's common to everybody. Even even couples that are functioning well uh, have, have struggle with this. Is is again recognizing your attachment need, uh, recognizing your dependency need, asking. In a way that evokes empathy from the other person, which which will automatically make that person be extremely motivated to give you what you need in that moment. You know, like with sex, for example. Often couples will fight about sex, and the partner who wants to have more sex will sometimes engage in. They'll get hurt, they'll feel rejected, and then at you know months down the line, they they just burst and they're like. We never have sex anymore. I mean, why, why don't, you know, how come you don't have sex anymore? What's wrong with you? That kind of talk. Instead of saying something like, when we have sex, I feel really close to you. And when we don't have sex, I feel distant from you. And that makes me sad. And it makes me really worried that we're growing apart. And I don't know if sex is the solution or some other thing, but I love you and I want to be close to you. And I also like to have sex with you, and I, I I just don't know what to do, and and I I feel afraid and scared that we're growing apart. I guess saying something like that evokes empathy from the other person. Saying something like "you are a cold bitch" and you never have sex with me, you know, saying stuff like that will have the opposite reaction. the 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 person will be hurt, and then they'll get angry and they'll reject you and they won't listen to a single fucking thing you're saying. So so there are two different ways of communicating your, after you've noticed your attachment needs. And, and so it's a matter of being vulnerable and asking for things directly and taking responsibility for your feelings and not blaming other people, giving people the benefit of the doubt, and uh, tr- phrasing things in a way that other people can hear. Um, and giving other people the benefit of the doubt is another tip within this tip is that uh, when you give, when you don't give your spouse or your friends or your, or your coworkers the benefit or even people on the other side of the political spectrum the benefit of the doubt, you're writing a very negative nar- narrative that is going to motivate behaviors that will bother the other person. So if if you approach that person with this narrative of just like, you know, you don't care about me, you are an uncaring person, you don't notice things, you're stupid, or you're kind of a bumbling fool, and you know what, I, I just don't respect you, you know, that, that's the narrative in your head, that will affect the way you talk to that person, which is going to hurt their feelings, which is going to cause them to do exactly what you don't want them to do. And so... Having giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, believing that inside them they do care about you, believing that inside them they are thinking about you and are trying. They're trying. And so if something is going wrong, it's either because of a misunderstanding or they're scared or they're freaking out or something. It's often that the other person is freaking out. When, whenever your spouse or someone else is bothering you and you're just like, how come? You know, and, and you have these frequent complaints about each other. It's often because the other person is, is having a, an internal meltdown that they have learned from a very early age to mask extremely well. As an example, uh, something that I think is common, I remember when I was growing up in school, there, were always, there was always this accusation towards, I guess it was always towards girls, actually, you know, God, how sexist was this? But, you know, what are you going to do? That some girls were stuck up. I remember that was a big thing in the 80s was, oh, she's stuck up, you know, she's that. And that was never a accusation of a male. Isn't that interesting? No guy was ever accused of being, maybe some guys, but it was mainly a girl thing. Anyway, and every once in a while, I would get to know one of these stuck up girls and I would realize, oh, she's just really shy and she's um, kind of afraid of talking. And so really, so she's not stuck up, but she's coming across to other people like she's stuck up, meaning that she's judging others, she thinks she's superior and and too good for them to be expressive towards them or something. And I learned like, oh, this person is actually really afraid. And I remember, and then the next stuck-up accusation would happen, and, I, and I'd and i be like, ah, oh, yeah, she's stuck-up. And then over time, I'd get to know her, and I was like, oh, actually, she's really nice. And I think the reason why people think she's stuck-up is because she's shy. <laughs> and so there's always this, this, and of course, you know, gender plays a big role because girls are supposed to be accommodating and pleasant and smile and, out, you know, very uh, appeasing to other people, whereas guys can walk around in the same demeanor and, and just be thought of as well he's just a guy he doesn't really do that kind of thing and so there's all that stuff but but i learned that as you know early in life that what we perceive in other people is not always what's happening and the other thing is is that when people are suffering and they're afraid they go into a mode that gives off the impression that they don't care that they're just above it all And they're, they just don't care. And in a lot of the couples that I work with, that is what's happening. It's not the stuck up version, but it's like when I, you know, when we're having a discussion about this sort of thing, I get this vibe from my spouse that my spouse just doesn't even care. And the reality is they care so much that they're freaking out and their outward expression is shutting down. It's a you know, it's a it's a thing: fight or flight or freeze or appease, and it's sort of the freeze response. It's the deer in headlights. It's like, oh shit, what is happening right now? Like, if you act invisible, the tiger will not kill you, <laughs> and that's what a lot of people do. They just they they shut down their ability to communicate what's happening. And and, it, and so, you have to give the person the benefit of the doubt, and the person who's freaking out has to say something too. The person who's freaking out has to say, has to say something like, "So I know on the outside right now I'm ge- I have a sort of blank response, but no on the inside I am freaking out right now, and I'm 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 scared. I don't know what to do." And a lot of times that will eliminate the fight because the person, it, you know, the other person is looking at you going. Oh, you don't care. You have no response and then all of a sudden you say just let you know my outward appearance looks like I don't care, but actually inside I really do care about all of this that we're talking about and I don't know what to do. I'm confused and frustrated and scared and I, I, I'm you know, I'm my blood is boiling. I'm distressed. I don't know what to do. When you say that to another person like, "Oh, I thought you were a cold bitch, you didn't care, but now you're telling me" that you're actually suffering and you care so much that your body is freaking out right now. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad this is affecting you because it's affecting me too. And let's get through this together. You know, it's, it's a, it's a very, I've seen it happen on my couch and I've done it in my own life and it is a wonderful thing. And it, when I, I have couples who do this, it brings tears to my eyes to see, that vulnerability and that love between people. And so many things are facilitated by that. So many things, mood, anxiety, meaning in life, um, just feeling less insecure, feeling supported, feeling empowered, feeling optimistic, feeling um, like the future is okay, feeling like you are not alone, feeling like, If something bad happens, someone will be there. Um, Just so many things, you know, uh, are facilitated by knowing your attachment needs, respecting your attachment needs, and cultivating relationships through various different means that will meet your attachment needs. Okay, so that's number two. Okay, so... If everything takes as long as number one and number two, this is going to be a 10-hour episode. <laughs> so I'm going to try to... I, I, think the, I think the optimized attachment one was going to be long. So, let's, so there's 20 tips here for a good life. Number three is love thy neighbor. This is an uh, obvious one. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them done unto, do unto you. The law of reciprocity. Or as Bill and Ted said, be excellent to each other. I think that's what they said. There's so many benefits to loving your neighbor. It's it ends up um, you know re- they end up reciprocating and loving you. It's also a moral thing in my book. It's it's a it's a moral thing to give and love, and it makes you feel good. There, it, it is a you know someone is. Um, someone is entering the post office and their arms are full and they're trying to figure out how to open the door and you run up there and you open the door for them. Well, you didn't have to do that and you don't know that person and they're probably never going to be given a chance to give back to you. But damn, does that not feel so great? (laughs) It feels so great to, to run up there and open the door for that person. And they're like, Oh man, thanks. It, it, you know, it doesn't benefit you at all. You have to expend energy, but it feels good. So loving others, giving to others, has just its own emotional benefit, let alone eventual reciprocity from them when you are in need and they will give to you. I, I, I can't tell you how important this is. Uh, some people will write me and say, I don't understand how you can have such a, I don't know, such a um, non-reactive view toward Republicans or Democrats or whatever, you know. And this is probably where it comes from, is an extreme habit that I've been forming since I was a kid to, you know, try to default to love default to love, default to care and compassion, true compassion, not like, well, I'll act like I care or I'll act like I can see it from their perspective because it'll help them to feel at ease. No, I'm talking about true compassion, true love for other people. As a professor of therapy, I will often introduce that term of love, and people will kind of be shocked sometimes. They'll be like, whoa, you know, we've never heard a a therapy professor use that term. But it is, it's accurate. When you have a client and you are being compassionate, to me, in my definition of love, you are loving that person. We, in our puritanical American society, we associate love with sex, but I'm here to tell you the vast majority of loving acts and loving emotions have nothing to do with sex. So you can love other people and you can be loving towards others as a therapist or otherwise. Right. So that is, it's, you know, I, I it's not like sleep where I can point towards research and say like, Oh, you know, um, love. If you love thy neighbor, you will live five years longer or something. Um I this is this is a moral thing. This is a meaning thing. This is this is a right thing. It's just right. And in my experience, following that principle has enhanced my life. I can't even tell you how much. There there are times when I, you know, am bothered by another person and I'm just like, God damn it, that fucking asshole, blah blah blah. And at some point I'll be like, okay turn to love, turn to love, and I turn to love, and everything shifts for me. Wisdom emerges, options emerge, my mood is better, I am better able to approach that person and fix things if you know if, if necessary, and I find that we don't do enough of that. Um, I know that it's cliche to say, and I know a lot of people out there do it, but I just... I don't think it's in the public discourse and I and even actually there's even in my liberal echo chamber there's a bit of a negative association with this principle as well you know I'll say like well you know I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and I try to love them and I try to be compassionate and I try to listen and and there's this notion which is valid but I don't think it negates this principle in in my world that states that, well, when you have a offensive, oppressive system and individuals, you need to get angry at them and you can't just appease them. You can't just love them. You know, you don't want to be an uncle Tom. You don't want to be a, a wet blanket. You got to fight fire with fire sometimes. And for sure, that's absolutely true. But in my experience, the vast majority of times that I, compassionate and loving and understanding, that will fix the problem. It doesn't always fix the problem, but it often does. And and if everyone, including the offending party, were also to love, you wouldn't have anything to react to to begin with. So anyway, so that's number three. So number one is get good sleep. Number two is optimize your secure attachments or establish secure attachments. Number three is love thy neighbor. Number four is have gratitude. Appreciate what you have, you know, uh, there's nothing like, whenever I get sick, I like the flu or some other kind of ailment, I immediately recognize what I used to have, which was my health. I, I immediately go, oh my God, being sick sucks. And last week when I was not sick, I did not appreciate how wonderful my life was back then. You know, it's such a, and this is supported by empiric empirical evidence is that gratitude does absolutely improve one's life. Um, Before I, uh, whenever my head hits the pillow, uh, well, uh, I used to, I don't do this anymore, maybe because I do it in my regular life, but I try to have gratitude for things, you know, the big things, health, family, the fact I'm alive, um, <clears throat> that I have a roof over my head, all these kinds of things. You know, it's why people say, said grace or say grace, you know, thank you, God, for this food. It is a wonderful thing to have gratitude, to recognize what you have. If all you do is focus on the negative, you will have an extremely negative narrative in your mind and you're going to get depressed. Whereas if you have gratitude, you will have a different narrative in your mind you'll have a narrative of of abundance and of things that you do have now again this doesn't negate the efforts or recognition for change and for fighting against unfairness you know you don't want to look you don't want to point to an oppressed person and say you should appreciate what you got honey you know you don't that's not politically there are things to consider for sure but Having gratitude is a wonderful thing. Um, Having appreciation for what you have and recognizing that. And it also kind of points you in a direction, right? It's like your head hits the pillow and you're worrying about things. You're like, wait a second. I need to redirect my mind. I want to have gratitude for my health. I want to have gratitude for my family. I want to have gratitude for my pets. I want to have gratitude for my house. I want to have gratitude for my job. I want to have gratitude towards all these wonderful things. And what it does is like, you know, this little thing I'm worried about, not that big of a deal, and doesn't threaten any of those things that I really care about. So that's number four, have gratitude. Number five is, and again, these are kind of going in um, priority, meaning from more priority to, I'm guessing, less priority. Number five is increase your self-awareness. Understanding your psychology. Understanding your attachment needs. Understanding your reactivity. Understanding your emotions. Just knowing you even have emotions is kind of a feat, you know. Um, I recently just, you know, I'm 47, been in therapy, you know, most of my life, been a therapist, helped people with emotional awareness. Just this week, I discovered a new aspect of my emotional life. I discovered that uh, I've always thought of myself as someone who can handle change and transitions easily, I would look around at other people around me and be like, man, everyone gets stressed out. Why is everyone always stressed out? It's sort of my persona of like, I'm super cool and everything's fine. And through this moving process of moving my house and home office, I had that narrative in my mind. I'm like, well, everyone's freaking out, but you know what? I've got it under control. Everything's fine. And But I started noticing these these symptoms, these these um, stress symptoms, these dis- and mood problems, and I was and I noticed it because I've you know over time incrementally become just ever so slowly more aware of myself, and I'll you know continue to go down that road in the future. But at this point in my journey, I've 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 realized like wait a second, I'm I seem to be I seem to be acting out a lot of things right now, or a few things right now, and. I don't like that. What's going on there? And I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just my circumstances. My life sucks right now or something. And I thought, well, I wonder if I'm also freaking out about this transition, which, of course, would be natural, and I like to think that I don't care and that I'm super cool, but in reality— I'm actually suffering quite a or you know to an extent that makes me act out in these ways and isn't that you know and, and it was like a you know light bulb in my mind I was like oh I am suffering deep down but because of my propensity to deny those things and because of my propensity to to believe or want to believe that I'm super cool I am completely unaware of the distress I'm going through distress and anxiety and difficulty and grief and uh, th- suffering is not always totally obvious to the individual, and particularly men because we're socialized to believe we're super cool or we're supposed to try to be super cool. There are many ways in which your body will express stress. People can have increased cortisol uh, cortisol levels and not even know it. They will say, oh, I'm fine, but when you actually measure their bodily markers, they their body is actually stressed out, which implies a psychological distress. And they're like, no, I'm fine. And, you know, people's uh, blood pressure will rise and fall depending on their distress, and, and cognitively they won't necessarily notice it. And so it takes a skill. It's a very complicated process. Uh, uh, skill to be able to notice things about you that it, that are signs that you're going through difficulty so so no understanding all that kind of stuff understanding your fears understanding that there are things that freak you out and that understanding that is very important as opposed to being completely unaware of that whole thing and Just thinking that the way that you feel is reality, you know, like, right, you know, in this transition for my move, I was having bad moods, I found, and I was getting, I was getting, I was irritable. And so the temptation without self-awareness is to be, is to think, well, the reason why I'm being irritable is because everyone around me is an idiot. (laughs) That's that's when you believe the hype, right? That's when you're like, oh, you know, I'm pissed off. Well, you know, everyone must be a dick to me right now or everyone must be uh, annoying and stupid and deserving of my irritability. Whereas instead of saying, hmm, I wonder if I am in distress right now and I am being more irritable because of the Transition I'm going through because it is, it's you know it's worrisome on a deep level of of what of uncertainty what's going to happen, did I make the wrong choice, all these kinds of things, and I'm expressing it through a bad mood and through irritability and really the outside world is the same as it was last week but I'm just reacting to it differently. That is a a very useful tip for a good life. I'm here to tell you. Number six is manage your time that you have on this planet. I've done whole episodes on how to manage your time, but just to summarize is don't waste your time. If someone invites you to dinner plans that you don't want to go to, don't go. You know, if your boss assigns you with a project that you don't want to do and you don't have to do, don't do it. If your friend asks you, you know, I had a, a Supervisee who wanted to talk about this topic actually, and she, she was like, "Yeah, well, my friend asked me to help her with this training that she is doing, and so I said yes, and I really regret it because i I'm super busy right now with school and my practice and da 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 and then this friend asked me to do this thing and and I just said yes and helped her with this." training pre- presentation that she's doing and it was super time consuming and you know I, I I'm really regretting that I said yes well, those are kind of the things it's like be protective of your time and don't waste your time and don't add things to your time that you don't need to do now again, privilege here some people you got five kids, you're a single mom, you um, have to work, you have chores to do when When someone asks you to do something that you don 't want to do, you might have to do it anyway right so so the what i 'm talking about are things that are optional um, and pushing back on your boss is a big thing uh, you know i 'm here to tell you as a boss myself when I was in charge of my program at Antioch, I was frequent people frequently push back on push back. On me, or they just wouldn't even do it. I would ask them, Can you, you know, I'm I'm trying to delegate here because I'm doing everything and I'm trying to have other people do stuff and to help me out. And so, could you, you know, could you do this? And and they'd be like, Sure. And then they just wouldn't do it. (laughs) And I'm here to tell you that bosses don't have as much power as we think they some, some bosses do and wield that power. But, but a lot of time, a lot of times, bosses, if you tell them, Look, I don't have time for that. They'll find someone else to do it or, you know, because in their mind, they're like, well, if I fire this person, then I have a whole bunch of things that I have to ask other people to do. So at least this person is doing some of the things I need to get done. So, you know, figure that out and and know that you have rights. That's the other thing is you have labor rights. You know, I, I can't tell you how many clients I talk to who, you know, they're working at a job. And someone quits or gets fired and they just give this other person's responsibilities to them. They're just like, okay, well, since Jane, since Jane quit and we haven't found a replacement, we, we need you to do her job too. And I'm always like, and you know, the client will be telling me the story and they're stressed out. They don't know what to do. And I'm like, whoa, 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 that is kind of illegal. Now, again, in some context, it's just the way things are, but really, you have rights as, a, as someone who is a worker. You, and and what, I t- what I tell people is, if this work um, assignment, if you can achieve it within the 40-hour work week without adding too much stress to your life, then fine. But if you're working extra hours that you don't want to work, if you aren't able to take a break, if you're eating lunch at your desk... If you're dreaming about your job at night, if you're feeling like shit because you're always behind, then that is that is not fair to you. And you have rights to say to the man, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm just not. I have this many things to do and that's what's going to happen." Now, some bosses and administrations will get in fights with you about it. And I've been involved in actually litigation with unions and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, it can get nasty. But the point is, is that, um, uh, be protective of your time because you, you know, imagine you're, you you'll live until 85, if you're lucky, right? You live until you're 85 and you spend years from 25 to 65, just completely wiped out by overwork at at your job. And you're plagued by it. It interferes with your home life. You You don't enjoy your life. You don't have time at work to browse the internet every now and then. And just, you know, and then you die, you know. It's like, no. And so you got to get angry about that. You got to be like, I have limited time left on this planet. I, Kirk, am 47. And in all likelihood, I, you know, at average wise, I'll live to, you know, be somewhere in my 80s. So I have about 40 more years, 35 more years ish. And that means I have, you know, 35 more summers to do something. I, you know, generally speaking, you know, I do about one trip a year, you know, like I went to Europe last year. And so I have 35 more trips I have uh, to go on in my life. Um, and probably not 35 cuz you know, I probably travel past a certain age might be difficult. So, you know, maybe I have 20 more trips. Um I have 20 30 more years of doing this podcast and How many different deep dives do I want to do? Right. And, uh, and at some point I will be done and I won't be able to do anymore. And I'll be damned if my boss is going to, is going to get in the way of that. Now I know I have to do something at my job. I have to, I have to, you know, perform and contribute and all that stuff. And that provides meaning to me, but it has to be in balance with my overall goal in life, you know? And along these lines, you want to plan your career and really think very clearly about the factors involved. And I've I've talked about this before as well, is I find that a lot of people, there's two types of career planners, people who think about money all the time and people who don't think about money at all. And, you know, the the money people are very familiar with, like, well, how much does this job make and how much does this job make? And there are other people just like, you know, I I don't know. I don't even know how much that job makes, but I really want to do X, Y, or Z. And you need to understand that money is important. And uh, for most people, it's not, you know, at a base level, it's a survival thing. You you just can't live without a certain amount of money. But also, you know, as you get older, you, you know, you want your car breaks down and you're sick of constantly, you know, fixing this, this old beater car. And you, you know, you want a better car, and having a job that pays enough money to afford such a thing is is very convenient and and actually saves you money because the amount of or saves you time and money, I suppose. But the amount of time and money you spend trying to fix this old beater car could be saved if you had a job that had a was making a bit more money. And so, as you are planning your career and thinking about okay. You know I'm twenty five, I'm thirty years old. What kind of career do I I have to spend a third of my life working? How you know what do I want to be doing? how How much money is in certain jobs? So you know, because to me, the perfect job is like this perfect match between um, earning enough money for you to be happy and um, sustain your life uh, with relative comfort and a job that is meaningful and not annoying, right? Because for me, for example, I could earn, um, I don't know, three times as much money if I focused on, or maybe even more than that, if I focused on providing assessments. And I've talked about this before as well. So I'm qualified to provide psychological assessments. And if I got good at it, I could probably do it pretty quickly. And if I did that 40 hours a week, I could – you can – if you do psychological assessments and you get good at it, and it takes, I don't know, five or ten years to get good at it, and you get, you know, good at doing them very quickly, then – and you get like a team of uh, people, you know, master's level people or, you know, recent doctoral grads to actually administer the test even better because then you're not doing any – you're just charging the full fee. And the fees can be in the thousands of dollars for these psychological assessments, you can earn a lot of money a year and I'm qualified to do that. And I don't want to do that because although that's a lot of money, which would be great, I don't like doing that kind of stuff. It, it, it brings me down. It feels like homework. If I had to, I could, if it was my only option, sure, I'd do it, but I have other options, you know? And so I take a, a massive hit in, in income and, to do the, my career that I do now. And I am always thinking, I remember when I was 16 years old, I, you know, you're always looking for like a part-time job or a summer job or this kind of thing. And I remember realizing early in life that if you looked long and hard enough and you networked enough, a job will come along that will be much better than the other jobs that you find. So, you know, I worked at a Chinese restaurant that was my first job, and it was horrible I mean it was the one people were great and it was fun and I remember it fondly It happened you know that job was in the early eighties, and I still remember it um I was actually working under the table. I didn't have a social security number back then kids didn't have social security numbers until they applied, but I feel like today infants are given security numbers anyway so I was, um, uh, working at this Chinese restaurant as a bus boy and I worked Friday and Saturday nights from six to nine because they didn't really need a bus boy because that was their big business time was six to nine o'clock on Friday and Saturday nights. These three hours were backbreaking work. I mean, it was, you know, constantly running around, uh, lifting things, you know, trying to make everyone happy, all these customers and, and think about Chinese food, um, restaurants is that it's not like an american food restaurant where people sit down they order one thing you bring out the food you bring out the check chinese food it's a it's an ordeal you know you got that lazy susan in the middle and there's several dishes and and you've got tea and you've got drinks and you've got water and you know it's just a it's a whole thing and you know then you got the fortune cookies and you got you know there's just it's just a lot of uh, process for the workers. And I was 13, 14 years old, and and it was, it was very hard. Well, later on, skip forward to when I'm like 16, 17 years old, and I, through networking with people that I knew and my dad knew, I got this job as a security guard at this. And all I had to do, it's kind of a complicated thing, but all I had to do was sit in this booth for eight hours. And whenever a car came up I would open the gate. That was pretty much the whole thing. Every once in a while, I'd have to do, I'd have to drive around to kind of make sure that everything looked fine. But for the most part, you know, 99% of the time, I just sat in this booth and I could have friends over and I could bring my, my guitar and my keyboard and my CD player and my homework. And it was basically just this, this, you know, I don't know. I could do anything I want. I could call people on the phone. And so, so, I uh, realized that, man, so there are some jobs available to teenagers that are very hard and there are some jobs available to teenagers that are very easy. And isn't that interesting? That, you know, how does this make sense? And both jobs are, you know, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm, um, I know more about security jobs. I'm 16. I don't know anything about being a security guard. The difference was, was that, I spent more time looking for the optimal job. I didn't just take the first job that came my way. I was selfish with my time. I was selfish about my energy. And I said, you know, I'm I'm worth a little bit more time looking for a, a different job. Now, if I didn't find the security job, then, I, you know, I would have worked at McDonald's or something like that. But I spent a little bit more time looking. Well, it's the same thing with planning your career. You're 20, you're 30, you're 40, you're 50 even. And... You know, take a little bit of time and think about like, well, what am I capable of doing? What would I like to do? What are those jobs actually like? How much do they pay? what What is the day to day activities? How stressed will I be? What are the benefits? what are the What are the long term? What's the long term outlook look like? Um, Where am I going to be in five years? What do I want? Um, Have I actually talked to people in those careers? to know exactly what that's like. I can't tell you how many people come to me and ask me for advice about entering my field. And they have an extremely simplistic idea of what the field is. Our field is not that complicated, but it's complicated enough that just browsing the internet or talking with one or two people is not going to give you an understanding of the careers available in mental health. It is very particular and and very opaque to the outside world. And so, I find that you know people will say. I was actually just talking to someone, a friend of mine. He's and he he was talking. He was asking me advice about his wife because his wife is a school counselor and wants to become a therapist. And so he was like, "Yeah." So she's thinking about you know getting her PsyD. That's that's what she decided on. And I was like, "Well, if she wants to be a counselor. Is if there's a, is that all she wants is to be a counselor?" She's he's like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Well." Why would she get a PsyD? Because a PsyD is, is, you know, at minimum five years, more likely six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of school, $130,000, $140,000 probably of debt, right? And you'll be qualified to be a therapist, sure, but you'll also be qualified to do a lot of other things that, you, that don't involve psychotherapy. Um, whereas if she were to go to a master's program, she will be a counselor and she'll be trained just as well as a sighty person as a counselor. In fact, in my opinion, better in a lot of ways because you're focused on counseling and therapy specifically and not on all the other things. And instead of $140,000, you're spending $50,000. And instead of, instead of full-time school for six years, you're full-time school for two and a half so, you know, very different, right? And my friend is like, whoa, that sounds totally like what? You know, thanks for telling me that. And I'm just like, well, people, you know, do your homework, figure it out. It, you know, just just asking a couple people isn't... And that just asking me isn't going to give you the answers because, you know, I have a particular point of view. And so, um, and that's just my field. So that doesn't count all the complicated jobs I like can... Microsoft and Amazon and and healthcare and education and government and um, service and, you know, just there's so many jobs out there that um, if you're, again, if you're going to spend a third of your life working, do your homework about what that is going to look like and what is best for you. Assume that you are worth it and assume that you don't know the answer and assume that the, the knowledge you have about the careers available to you is not all of the knowledge, right? You know, it'd be like um, y- y- you're trying to buy some jeans or something and you're like, you just go off of word of mouth. You go to one friend and you're like, so what kind of jeans do you think I should wear? And they're like, well, I think you should wear this size and this brand. And you're like, okay. And then you just order them online, like sight unseen. You just, okay, fine. No, when you need jeans, you go to a store, you try them on, you look at your butt in the mirror, you know, you, you ask, do these make me look fat? You know, you, you do all the things. And then after a while, you, you know, buy a pair of jeans, um, you know, it, If if jobs were easier to do, but because they're not, they're more complicated. You have to spend more time anyway. The other thing is is um, planning your general life situation. You know, what sort of car do you want? What sort of what sort of house do you want? Where should you live? Should you live close to your parents? Should you live far away from your parents? Should you live close to your work? What kind of school district? Um, uh, What kind of what kind of tools do I need to get my, to get the job done? You know, should I have a desktop computer? Or should I have a laptop computer? Should I buy a better lawnmower? You know, these are all things that are important to contemplate because it basically all comes down a lot of it comes down to time. Like um, just as an example, and this is a common story you'll hear people say is, you know, someone will be trying to save money on gas so that, you know, they, they're like, they're like, well, this this gas station, their gas prices are too expensive. Whereas the gas station across town, you know, it's 50 cents cheaper. Well, how much time are you going to spend driving across town, getting through traffic, blah, blah, blah? Is it worth that extra 50 cents or not? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But being mindful and logical and careful about what you spend your time on, you know, like another example, mowing the lawn. It's like you, you have a crappy push mower or something and you're like, well, I don't want to spend a couple hundred bucks on a, on a better lawnmower because, um, you know, I just, I just don't want to waste that money. But, uh, but as a result, you're spending every Sunday, just, you know, hating your life and pushing this stupid mower back and forth. And, um, and, Whereas, you know, in the contrary, you go out to dinner with your friends and you drop $200 on dinner for you and your spouse. And you didn't even like the dinner and you didn't even like your friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you could have skipped that dinner with the friends and bought yourself a new lawnmower or something or or vice versa, you know? And so just, you know, it's something that I think about a lot. I think about like, what's the logic behind my decision-making and is, does it make sense? Because if I just go with my gut... A lot of times it doesn't work, right? Um, if I just go with my gut, like, you know, just as an example, I do this a lot. I'll look at a menu and I'll be like, ooh, you know, I want that dish or something. And I'll be like, well, I don't know, it looks a little expensive. And But then I think about how much money did I spend on my on my cell phone bill this month, <laughs> how much money did I spend on, you know, I'll be like, ah, I I think I can afford the extra three bucks for this dish that I want. And, but if I go with my gut though, it doesn't, it feels wrong. Right. Um, or, you know, in the reverse, it's like um, uh, not, you know, how much money am I spending on thinking about how much money am I spending on going out to dinner? You know, how much money is that, And do I want to spend money doing that? Maybe I don't. Maybe maybe you do. But just trying to, you know, because it's all time. Because the more, every dollar you spend is time you spent at work. And so being very careful about that. Because if you manage your money better, then you can work less or you can retire early and have more free time, right? So it's just all that kind of stuff. Um. Thinking about debt, you know, whether or not you should go into debt, um, what sort of debt you should go into. Um, for me, for example, what I, when I got my master's in my mid-20s, I decided to go to school full-time and work barely at all. And as a result, you know, natu- so I took a bunch of student loans and, and paid rent and, you know, bought food with my student loans. I was in tremendous debt by the time I graduated with my master's degree, and if I went back in time, I would have told myself, "Look, you know, add another year to your schooling, and maybe work twenty hours a week. You know, you can, you'll you'll be in far less debt, and you might even learn a little better because you're not cramming everything into this short amount of time." Now, having said that my, you know, twenty four year old self would have probably told my forty seven year old self to fuck off. I really want to be a therapist as soon as possible. But but it's it's just just think about debt and think about that, you know, house house debt is another big thing. Do you really need a gigantic house? Think about thirty years of paying a bill of a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand dollars in Seattle I think the typical mortgage is, you know, two to three thousand dollars a month. And just think about that. For thirty years, every month, two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars, four thousand dollars. And that's not even including utilities and you know, all that other stuff. And so just think about like, you know, what that means to your overall life. Do you really you know, is it really going to make you happy? to have an extra thousand square foot feet in your house. Um, you know, just, just be very careful about that. And for example, for me, I, I like cars. I, as anyone, as any other red blooded American does, it's like, Ooh, you know, cool cars, you know, that nice looking Audi or that, or that Tesla or something. And it, but in the end I'm like, look, I, I, sure. I would love to have a super kick-ass car, but, I'll be damned if I, I'm going to, you know, on this planet, I'm going to, um, you know, the benefit I get from a kick-ass car, as opposed to the amount of money it costs and all that kind of thing, it's just like, it's not worth it. And and plus my last name's Honda and Honda is an affordable car. So I'll just buy another Honda. <laughs> and, um, and I, I was talking with another guy my age this uh, last weekend and we were both, um, um, talking about that and bonding around that. We're like, yeah, you know, who cares about nice cars? You know, I just need four wheels. And the other thing that we were saying was, you know, uh, cheap cars today are pretty good. I mean, when I think about even nice cars from the 80s and 70s, like a nice Mercedes in the 80s, or even a nice BMW in the 80s, is shittier than a an than average Kia or or um, uh, Hyundai today. Like an average Kia, shitty Hyundai car feels great and looks great and has useful interior things and you know so so cheap you know a f- low line low budget cars today are are great you know so there's really no i don't think huge reason to spend a shit ton of money on expensive cars but again that but if buying a super expensive car is what you want to do, then do it. But the point is, is think about how that all works into the fact that you have limited time left on this planet. And every dollar you spend is, is time you're spending. And keeping up with the Joneses and trying to be impressive is often an empty pursuit. Also, in terms of managing your time left on this planet is having a bucket list, thinking about, well, you know, when I die, what do I want to have done? what's what's my what's my priorities here is it working extra 20 hours a week and impressing my boss for the slight possibility of getting promoted to a job that will stress me out even more than the job that i have now or is it traveling more or loving my family more or writing that book i've always wanted to get to you know they, these are very important things to be extremely mindful of and if and again if you just go by your gut you Uh, often people will just, they're just reacting from moment to moment. And if you do that for your whole life, just before you die, you're going to regret things. You're going to go, why didn't I do that? You know, and it'll feel like I'm a loser, but really it's a lost opportunity for time management, for thinking about the fact that you have limited time left and, and how are you going to make it happen? And, what are your priorities? And often what that means is, what am I going to push back on? Who am I going to tell to fuck off? <laughs> it's often the thing. It's like, I need to tell my boss or I need to tell um, you know that family member or I need to tell or I need to move into a house that has less chores. I need to move into a condo that doesn't have oh, yards because I hate working in the yard or, you know, whatever it is, it's like, look, I, I need to figure this out. I need to, you know, prioritize my life. Again, this is all based on privilege if, you know, a lot of things I'm saying depend on having money and having an education and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, as I said before, all these depend on privilege. Okay. Wow. How long am I talking? And we're only on number seven. So let's go fast. Okay. Number seven is uh, contribute to society and to the planet. You know, charity, volunteer, ride your bike to work, try to conserve electricity, uh, make art. Stick up for somebody, help someone across the street, help someone through a door, learn about marginalization, march against marginalization, vote. For God's sakes, people, vote, (laughs) you know, do your part. So contribute to society. It's a big one. It's complicated. But I think that is something, another tip that I think can enhance your life One, it's a moral thing, just like love thy neighbor, but it also provides a lot of meaning and helps you to feel like you did something. Number eight is do stuff. Say yes to things. Try not to say no too often. Get out there. Have some experiences. Don't have a general policy of not doing things, um, unless that's best for you. I mean, you know, maybe you just love to cocoon in your house or something. But I find for myself is... You know, I just got an email this morning from someone uh, there. It's a conference that's happening um, in Oregon and I think in Oregon and it's um, some sort of conference about systems thinking and it's not clinicians. It's like biologists and computer people and stuff. And someone is reaching out to me and I, maybe for the podcast, not sure. I think for the, I think it's for the podcast and saying, you know, we'd like you to, be the keynote speaker or something, and you know when I first read the email, I'm I'm like I'm like oh god yeah, I I don't want to do that that's a huge time commitment and um and stressful and uh, I don't need that shit in my life so no but but on the other hand I'm like well you know that'd be memorable and it'd be interesting and. And again so so it these are when different principles come into play for me you know one is time management right which is like do i really want to spend that much time on that and and should i should i draw a boundary here with that and say no so that i can preserve the the more important things in my life which is all the rest of my life or should i do stuff and and say yes to things because we all, I think, I think we all have a tendency to say no to things. We all have a tendency to be like, "No, I don't want to stay out of my life. Don't bother me." And is this one of those times when I should say yes? You know, the fact that I work as a professor at Antioch University is because I said yes to things. There, you know, there was a time when being asked to be a professor was very stressful to me, and I was just like, "Oh, it's just so much time commitment." You actually don't, you actually don't get paid that much, by the way, and. I just, you know, time and stress and not that much money. Yeah, I don't know. I, I really want to say no. But I said yes enough times that I now I'm, you know, a full-time professor and love it. I, I'm so happy I said yes. And I would have been so bummed if I had said no. So, you know, it's just, so it's a balance between those things. And I think that um, for me, I, I so what I did with this email, this guy emailed me this morning, is I, I just emailed him back and says, well, what are the particulars here, you know? And are you asking me specifically or are you just sort of – is this sort of a blanket request? Actually, let me check my email. Maybe he's already responded. Um, yes, he has. Um, he says, sorry, I've been called away from – oh, right back later. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, so who knows? I might do that. I might not. Um Who knows? All right, number nine is question culture. Always question your society, question the messages that have been given to you, question, question the assumptions that are made around you and the, the assumptions you have internalized. And, you know, quite like, for example, question gender programming. I've talked about this before. As a man, I have been taught to be, quote unquote, strong, non emotional, independent, quote unquote and not ask for help. And um, and the more I question that, the more I enhance my life. You know, the more my life becomes better because of noticing ways in which society gives me messages and has given me messages to counter my, my best self. You know, for women, it's things like be nice and don't get angry. And the more you question those messages the more flexible you become to your needs that's always the important thing it's not it's not you know it's not like the prescription is women get angry the prescription is notice what your needs are and when you deprogram from societal dogma you're more responsive to your own needs and so when you get when you when you have emerging anger instead of suppressing it or channeling it in some weird way, you actually listen to it and say, okay, I'm angry. What does that mean right now? Does it, should I express it? Should I not? But when we are just, when we're beaten down by societal messages about gender and culture and age and, and what it's like, what you're supposed to be as an American or something, you, you become more rigid to a particular set of options that don't always meet your needs. Right? so, um, question culture, you know, just be very skeptical about the things that you've internalized and, and the assumptions that we make about things. Like, for example, nice cars are cool. Then nice cars are a status symbol. Um, a a giant diamond as a engagement ring means that you love your spouse more, means that you're a better person, or means that you've achieved more, um, Uh, you know, uh, just all sorts of things like that. It's just, it's really interesting when you start looking at culture and society and the understandings we have. And when you do that, not only do you have a better ability to get your needs met, but you also, in my opinion, can really just look critically at the kinds of things that make us feel bad. You know, like you, your car is shitty, for example, and you're like, man, my car looks shitty and is embarrassing. It's dirty on the inside. It's, it's got chipped paint, and I feel shitty about myself. I'm embarrassed about my car. But when you question society, you're just like, well, what is a car, you know, practically speaking? Well, it's transportation. It gets you from A to B. Well, do I give a fuck what it looks like from the outside? It has – I don't care. Like, chipped paint has no bearing on me going from A to B. Nothing. There's no – there's no effect. In fact, maybe it helps. I don't know. But the point is, is it? you know, there's n- – it's just society. It's just dumbass society. Mes- societal messages that equate chipped paint on the car with low class, which means you're a less worthy human being. And, you know, no, I'm not going to subscribe to that because I don't care. And I like this old car that with chipped paint and I don't want to buy a new car because I got better fucking things to do with my money. So, um, you know, questioning culture in that way. Number 10 is don't consume popular news. I've talked about this before. Popular news is toxic. It is flat out toxic. They are manipulating you to watch. They engage your fear response. And this goes for both Republicans and Democrats, I'm here to tell you. Uh, again, as I said before, I don't make any friends by saying this, but, you know, obviously, so there, I'd, I, have a, I have a lot of liberals and sub-Democrats or some uh, Republicans who listen to this podcast. So I'll say to, to quote unquote both sides. Um, you're both being fed a particular brand of propaganda. So to the Republicans, Fox News is a good example of uh, sensationalized propaganda that engages your fear response and keeps you watching. Immigrants are coming to get you. The socialists are coming to get you. The communists are coming to get you. The PC police are coming to get you. That, those are the, the fear response refrains. Um, you know, the anti-constitutionalists are coming to get you, whatever, they're coming for your guns, whatever. Okay. The liberal side uh, will, there's a whole other set of propaganda that it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from, but the daily show, Colbert, uh, John Oliver, MSNBC, I'm guessing, I don't know. But now, again, I've t- talked about this before. I love the daily show. I even like it with the new guy. I saw him live in New York. Actually, it was, a, it was an amazing show at the comedy underground. Um, I just picked a random night and went to the, went to the, you know, that one of the main comedy shows, comedy venues in, in Manhattan. And they had that guy, the guy from South Africa. I can't remember his name. They had, um, uh, uh Jones. What's the tall black woman on, uh, Saturday night live Jones. um, they had the guy from um, Cash Cab. <laughs> the guy from Cash Cab was doing a stand-up. They had Colin Quinn, who was noticeably drunk. So just there, just like four huge names. And and there were other comics that night, too. And I was in the front row, and it was awesome. And there was a guy sitting next to me who had a vest on, had a leather vest and no shirt. And every comic made fun of him. <laughs> Because you, if you sit in the front row at a comedy show, you're asking to be interacted with by the comic. And two, if you wear a leather vest with no shirt on and you look like um, the guy from Highlander, the actor of the TV show, I can't remember, Lorenzo Lamas. Anyway, long hair. Anyway, point is, is that um, I love I love liberal liberal echo chamber stuff. It is. It touches all the emotional centers in my brain around hating the enemy and, you know, thinking that these hicks are stupid and all that kind of stuff. But it's, you know, and some of it is great. John Oliver, some episodes are some of the best things that have ever been created for our society. But they have to come up with material for every week. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, you you turn to your, your base and you're like, well, if we just make fun of Republicans this episode, like, we know our audience will love that. And it's the same with Fox News. you know if, if we if we get some ranting and raving feminist on our show, our audience is gonna love that. So it's all about what our audience wants. It's not about informing you. and so so on the on the left side, the propaganda is uh, these hicks are racist, they are um, violent, they're you know borderline terrorists, Nazis, they are backward. They need to be eradicated. They're they're old. They're uneducated. They're stupid. Their brain doesn't work right. They're dogmatically religious. You know, these are all the propaganda lines that we hear. And like in all this, there's you know there's a sliver of truth, but it's way oversimplification. And again, it's just fear mongering. And um and so these new quote unquote news outlets. News outlets, but I, I, like, I don't call them news outlets. I call them, what's the term I should call them? And it's like propaganda machines, fear, fear entertainment, you know? That's probably a good term. Fear entertainment. It's just like, let us scare you so that you will pay attention. Or let us scare you and then laugh at it because laughter makes us feel better. These are toxic things. And I, for me, anyway, they make me feel very bad. I uh, Not only do I have what I believe to be unnecessary anxiety, a little bit of anxiety for sure. You know, I, I have anxiety about global warming, but really neither side is really talking about that in a very effective way. I mean, you have liberals like, you know, The Daily Show, they'll talk about global warming a little bit, but how many of the listeners and the people who produce that show uh, waste energy compared to other people on the planet? Um, You know, maybe some of them are doing good things for the planet, you know, but, but overall, like, how many liberals are, are doing like, what really is necessary to to be done, which is like drastic changes in our lives, me included, you know, I still drive my car to work. And so um, the point is, is that it's not like liberals are um, somehow um, off the hook when it comes to global warming, you know, are we we intellectually and you know through our speech are more accurate about what's happening, which is that humans are contributing to global warming and the rising oceans and the climate change is going to change things drastically and a lot of people are going to suffer, namely species, animal species and the balance of life on our planet and all sorts of bad things can happen and have already happened. So you know we're saying that, but are we doing anything really? <laughs> You know we're trying, uh, but you know it. it in a hundred years, I guarantee you they're not going to look back on us liberals and go like, "Thank God the liberals were there." They're going to be. They're just going to blanket us in twenty eighteen and say like, "All Americans were idiots about conserving energy and driving their cars and carbon emissions. Like all of them were idiots." They're they're not going to forgive us for having a good line and not doing anything. Anyway, my point is is that. Um, in my view, these are basically two teams. And, and often what people will say is, well, if you're, you know, you're, you gotta be one of, you gotta be on someone's team. You're either a a liberal or a conservative. But in my mind, uh, if we just look at the political uh, voting and the political points of view around like, you know, how much government should get involved or how much we should, how much of our um, budget we should be spending on welfare and, how does that benefit the economy? And da 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 da, uh, unemployment and intervention abroad. Like these are things that really a lot of po- politicians agree on anyway. But what we're really talking about when we're saying liberal and conservative today is we're really talking about two cultural groups. Two two cultural groups that I'm I don't feel like I'm a part of. Really, I'm definitely in you know as a Seattleite, completely immersed in the liberal cultural group. But I don't consider myself to be one of them, really, because, I, and why Why do I have to be, is the thing. Can't I be something else? Can't I, you know, it'd be like, it, to me, it's it's akin to, in our society, if, for whatever reason, you had uh, two two fighting groups, you had the Protestants and you had the other Catholics, and the Catholics were always fighting about the Protestants, and the Protestants were always fighting about the Catholics, and... And, you know, the Protestants are like, oh, the Pope and Italy and, you know, the Inquisition and, and the Catholics are like, oh, you don't, you know, you, your beliefs, you know, you're breaking away from the actual teachings. You know, they're just yelling at each other. If I saw two groups like that, I'd be like, well, I don't feel like I understand either one of you. And I could, I could see kind of that you're both just sort of fighting about the same thing and you're both standing on the same ground, which is Christianity and da, da, da. Well, that's how I see Republicans and Democrats is like, you're, you're both standing on the same ground. You're both standing on very similar principles and, um, and I don't ascribe really to either one of you. And if I were in charge or if my, or if politicians, that I wanted were in charge, they'd be doing something different. And they are a lot. They are actually like, I, I have friends who are local politicians. And when I actually talk with them about their job, like, you know, Trump doesn't matter. You know, Trump's a, a distant, uh, you know, just one of the thousands of politicians that are contributing to our rules and regulations and stuff. And, you know, his tweets have, have no bearing on their life they're they're working out budgets for schools they're working out budgets for roads they're working out budgets for welfare they're they're working out policies for unemployment they're working you know they're doing you know there are government officials doing this stuff all the time and you know who's talking about that in the media who's talking about that i don't you know not that many people now there are some places that are talking about it and when you seek out those sources it's it's i find to be much more relevant than, um, you know, rooting for a particular sports team is essentially what we're doing. You know, it's, you know, it's Seattle against San Francisco and the Seahawks, you know, against the Giants and blah, blah, blah. And It's just like, um, you know, just, uh, silly. Um, I said Giants, um, but I meant 49ers, you know, uh, I got my, uh, sports mixed up a little bit there and, um, that's embarrassing. Um, I thought about just sort of playing it off like well there's a New York Giants and that's football, and so um, I can let that go, but i don't know just decided to out myself on that um, okay, so this is just me, but my number ten tip is do not concern pop don't consume popular news, even the news that tickles your liberal or conservative funny bone because it raises your stress level, it pumps propaganda into your head, it gives you the very clear impression that half of the country are idiots and are uh, an actual threat to your life. I know people who are walking around right now, and particularly after Trump got um, elected, who believed that they were going to literally die because Trump was elected. I knew people like that. They, they were walking around, and I had a vague sense of that myself because of the propaganda that had been pumped into my head. But there were people walking around after Trump got elected who literally believed that their life was in danger, that someone was going to kill them in some nefarious way. And although I can't prove that they weren't in danger, I think with time after you know, a year and a few months of Trump being elected, that individuals, individual Seattleites, liberal Seattleites, were not actually physically in danger. Now, is our system in danger? Is our is our um, you know our code of ethics regarding politicians in danger? Yeah, sure. But people believed they were going to die because of the propaganda that had been popped into their heads. And the other side is the same thing. You know, when Obama was elected, same exact thing. They believed that they were going to die. And that irrationality is born out of propaganda. And the more you expose yourself to the propaganda machines, the the more sense of danger you get that is not rational. There are actual things that are dangerous in our world, as I've been talking about global warming. Species are dying by the minute and people around the planet, once the, once the oceans really start to rise and it's likely that'll happen, that whole swaths of people are going to die of starvation. You know, we have this vision. It's like, well, you know, flooding in the streets, no big deal. Well, what this means is, and climate change in general, what this means is like the whole system of agriculture will shift. And whole species of of animals will will die off, like you know, fish supply and and other kinds of things. And what that means is, the seven and a half billion people on the planet, there's a certain amount of them that aren't going to be able to afford the little bit of food that they can afford today, or and they're not going to be able to get access to to fresh water um, because of the little bit they already have. And they're going to run out of um, you know firewood, and they're they're going to run out. There's and you know, and that it, that is awful. That we are doing things right now that is contributing to and and failing to do other things right now that will contribute to potentially billions of people on the planet in the future dying, and it and it was preventable. Um, now, you know, the global warming that's already happening we can't prevent because it already happened. And also there's a certain amount of global warming that will happen in the future that we can't, you know, there's been studies and models that say that if we, if we stop, you know, putting carbon into the atmosphere completely right now, which is ridiculous. But if we just did that, the earth would continue to warm to a certain extent. So some of it is like already in the cards for us. But, but anyway, the point is, is like, this is a horrible thing. Now it might not happen. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, you know, some there's there's other factors like the the sun could cool down for a time, which could give us some time, or you know, other things can happen that will uh, potentially save us. But you know, in all likelihood, but also the sun could heat up and we could buy a little bit, and we could uh, it could even happen even faster. So there are um, there are actual things that are that are dangerous to us. The the um, when Trump attacks the press and uh, threatens to put people in jail and stuff like this, it's like for for things that you know presidents and people in power should not be doing. This is a threat to the our way of life. This is a threat to our society. In that um, other societies and other governments started to do stuff like that and things went really badly for them you know because once once the government hits a tipping point where they're so corrupt that they feel like they can just do anything the people lose all trust and pe- when people when the people lose trust things start to fall apart real quick and so that is a danger absolutely and to, to think that America is immune to that sort of thing is really dumb i mean other countries you know, you'll see news reports of other countries rising up against their government. You know, they'll be in the streets and and physically attacking government buildings. And and because the, the population is just like, they've lost all trust that the government will is actually on their side and, and is working. And so we need to believe what our country does well when we generally believe that the government is is a working entity and when you have the leader of the executive branch acting in a way that makes it hard to believe that it it, it threatens that trust. Um, there's so there's that there's people in our country and particularly around the world who don't have health care or uh, don't have access to vaccines or something and that's a real threat to humans that. You know who's talking about that Bill Gates is talking about that um you know is Bill Gates worried about trump tweets no he's he's funding with billions of dollars projects in in parts of the world to give people uh, medical attention so that they can live um you know but you know it's not a sexy story it doesn't involve a tweet or you know, a politician with funny hair uh, and there's, there's no joke in there, right? There's, there's nothing to laugh at. So the daily show is not going to talk about it. So it, you know, that's what I'm talking about is like, you know, um, popular news, toxic. Number 11, get angry. Uh, I find that uh, one of my tips for a better life is to get angry get angry at bullies, get angry at people putting pressure on you, get angry at your boss for giving you another project, get angry at unfairness, get angry at um, propaganda, get angry at things that are wasting your time. Because when we get angry, it motivates action. So when I get angry at the media, I I take action. I say, nope, no more. I'm done with all that. I'm done with The Daily Show. I'm done with John Oliver. I'm done with you know, Fox News, I'm done with Twitter, uh, you know, Twitter storms, for example, I'm done with uh, certain pages on Reddit, I, I'm, I'm just done with it, you know, I, I'm done with it. And that was from anger. And and so getting angry. you know, um, when I became program director at my university, I, over time started to get angry at, the job essentially. And I was like, fuck this job. It's, it's getting in my way. It is, um, there's so many things about this job that are aggravating to me. And I got angry and I, and it motivated action, which motivated me to quit. (laughs) I, I promoted someone into my job and said, you can do this because you're probably more suited for it. You are, you know, Jen Sampson. She's just much better at, um handling all the stresses and she has a much more i it seems balanced perspective on what it takes to do the job i did not and so my anger motivated me to take action Ang- anger motivates action and i guess that's you know i guess a part of the this tip is like make sure your anger uh motivates you to do something about it you know um sometimes anger is great just in and of itself but um man you know notice your anger manifest it and then do something, you know, Um, you know, like I am not going to give in to keeping up with the Joneses by having a gigantic house that makes me fucking angry and I'm not going to do it. I refuse to believe that a bigger house means I'm a better person that, and I refuse to, to give in to people around me who actually um, respect people with bigger houses fuck that shit. I have 40 years, 35 years left on this planet. I'm not going to waste my time on that bullshit. You know, it's anger. You got to get angry. It feels good. And it, you know, it's useful. Number 12 is to balance your vices. Things like alcohol, marijuana, buying, purchasing things, you know, uh, collecting shoes, going on Twitter, checking your phone, playing video games. Um, Balance it out. Don't you know, necessarily get rid of them. Maybe get rid of them, but but really, it's a matter of balance. I was talking with a client about um, his optimal weed life. I said, and and he's like, "Oh, I like that. I think I'll make a T-shirt out of that optimal weed life." He said, because um, you know he was struggling with how much pot he wanted to use, and there were times when he was using a lot and he didn't like it, and there were times when he wasn't using it all and li- he didn't like it. And he was sort of vacillating between both positions, but really it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of what's the optimal marijuana life. Um, you know, people who use pot will um, like to get high and like the relaxation, the, I don't know, the perspective that you get when you're on it. And, and it's, it provides benefits to it. So that would be a bummer if you had to give that up. But on the other hand, using it every day you get a little paranoid you, you just feel bad um, you you don't ever really feel clear of your head you feel distant from your spouse because your spouse doesn't use and so you know what's the optimal what's the optimal amount and trying to achieve that trying to achieve that balance and and how do you how do you achieve that rather than shaming yourself for doing it and then abstaining and then relapsing and abstaining relapsing again having said that some people are best when they completely abstain so but but i i would imagine the vast majority of americans involve are involved in some vice of some kind and just you know just being mindful number 13 is learn stuff learning has many benefits it's just fun to learn and i i think it helps to um to better your life, the more things, you know, Um, you know, there's many podcasts that teach things in a very accessible manner today, YouTube videos. I mean, there, there's some YouTube videos that, uh, you know, someone will make a three minute YouTube video that explains something complicated in the best way that it's ever been explained. I mean, I know some people are, are, you know, doing this, but, but many are not. Uh, if if some if someone someone could design a university, and maybe with a bit of enhancement of some additional lectures, they could probably teach ninety percent of their classes by just selecting the right YouTube videos. There are some excellent YouTube videos out there that you know, with graphics and research, explain things so quickly and so well and so interestingly that um, you know, learning. It's never been a better time to learn stuff uh, with the internet and everything. It's just like anything you want to know. Uh, and people are putting out new content all the time. It's, just, it's great. And, and it feels good. I think it enhances your life. And I think it enhances society. The more everyone learns, the better society becomes. And I don't know. I just think learning is great. Number 14 is go to therapy. Many benefits. Find the right therapist for you uh, emotionally, emotionally. Self awareness, everything we basically have been talking about. You know, you sit down and and you're like, ah, I don't know, I feel low energy, bad mood. How's your sleep? Ah, pretty shitty. Well Let's talk about that. So go to therapy. Number fifteen, don't be afraid of change. It, this is a complicated one, but I find that a lot of people believe that their life is more rigid than it actually is. They're just like, well, you know, I'm I'm 45. I you know I can't change careers now, and I'm like. Yeah, you can. You, you've you got another 30 years left plus of working. And, um, you know, people can get started in a career, even in complicated ones, within like five years. I mean, a, f- a 45-year-old person can go back to medical school and become a physician and in 10 years be, be practicing as a physician. So at 55, they, you know, from 55 to 75, they're a practicing physician. So, At any time in your life, you can change things. Again, privilege is a major factor, but, but in general, and career is just one of the things you can change. You can change the way you dress. You can change the way you think. You can change the sort of people you hang out with. You can, you know, you can say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to become a theater person. I've never, I've never been in theater and I'm going to change that, you know, instead of saying like, well, I'm not a theater person. And even though your needs might be pointing you in the direction of going into theater or, Eh, I'm not really an outdoorsy person. Well, maybe there's a side of you that wants to be an outdoorsy person. So, my point is is that you can change, and don't believe the that your habits define who you are, and that your past defines who you are today. It's complicated, but you know, um, I find that a lot of people just are just they just give up before they even consider things. You know, so don't be afraid to change. Number sixteen is be on time. <laughs> this is probably just me just yelling at people to please be on time because I'm a very punctual person. Um, I I think that again it's the further di- so I got to about twelve tips as Ruben asked me to get to twenty, and at, after about twelve I was like, well, now I'm kind of stretching, but I really wanted to please Ruben, patron Ruben, by getting to twenty. So you know, be on time. It's kind of a dumb one, but I don't know. I I think it's kind of um, I th- you know I think it's a tip to follow. There's so many things about being on it's sort of related to time management but there's so many great things to being on time and doing things on time. You know, when you read that email, respond to it right away. That's what I do. Because basically the way that I think about it is like um, just let me give I'll give you an example of mail that you get in, you know, from the mailbox. You go to your you go to your mailbox, you get the mail, you bring it in. And what a lot of people do, what I see a lot of people do, is they sort of plop it down on the counter. And then they go on with their day. And then they come back into the kitchen, and they see the mail there. And they're like, Oh, I need to deal with that. And then they do some more stuff, they come back into the kitchen, and they're like, Oh, yeah, there's that mail. Maybe I should do that. And so, so they go over to the mail, and they pick through it. And they take a few things out, and they put in the recycling. And, you know, and then they sort of organize, okay, these are the bills, I'll deal with that later. And then they, they see the bills again, and they're like, oh, there's bills. Well, I better put them by my desk. Oh, they put them by their desk. And then they see them in their desk, and they're like, ah, oh, I can't deal with them now, and they put them aside. And then, you know, f- you know, fast forward a week or two, and they're like, oh, got to do those. Oh, man, those bills. They're Maybe they're late. Oh, shit. Uh, what do I do? Okay, well, let's open it. So you open it up, you know, and you look at it. You're like, oh, okay, I have another week. So they put it aside. They come back to it. They look at the bill. They're like, oh, better do this now. So they pay the bill, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So how much time was spent in that process? You know, X amount of hours and, and really X amount of stress. Whereas if the person, so say it was, you know, say it was two hours of time and stress that was spent on that one bill. Whereas if you get the mail, you walk in the house, you immediately pay that bill. And walk back out to the curb and deliver it, you will spend five minutes tops, as opposed to two hours, and you are not stressed out. Now, again, privilege of having the money to pay the bill. But you know, if you have that privilege, the putting it off and, or, and having a system where you don't do things on time and you don't think about doing things promptly. You, in my view, often spend way more time on that topic. And another, another example is um, showing up on time to like an like a um, like a, an interview, a job interview, or something. Well, if you show up a half hour early, you're you're less stressed. You're better able to perform at the job interview. You have time to find a good parking spot, maybe even save money because you can, you know, get a parking spot that doesn't cost so much, blah, blah. Whereas if you show up, you know, on the dot, then you're stressed out, you're sweaty, you pay more for worse parking, you're not as great at the job interview, you don't get the job. So it's just a lot of things like that, like a little bit of time management to be on time and a little bit of a commitment, not only to be on time, but to be early let me give you another example when i have students i have a lot of students right and when i have a student that consistently shows up late i lose respect for that person even if they're a good student i'll be like that person is one of those people who's late and i'm sure they're not just late with that thing i'm sure they're late in a lot of aspects in their life and although i'm sure they're great people i don't want to i don't want to recommend that person to a colleague as a you know because i know a lot of people in the area having worked in the area a long time you know i can connect people with jobs i'm not going to recommend that person because someone who's late to my class might be late to sessions with clients might be late with their paperwork you know all that kind of stuff and it's like i don't want to i don't want to foist that burden on a friend of mine so i'm not going to recommend them so you you never know the benefits of being on time And, and I suspect that those late students don't know that I'm, that I'm making a note never to refer them to an outside employer. (laughs) You know, I'm just like, no, I'm not going to recommend it. Whereas someone who is always on time and always early, I'm, I'm like, man, impressive. I can depend on that person. They, they're, they're keeping their life manageable enough that they can manage that. And so being on time solves a lot of problems, um, Dealing with things, having a good system so that you can do things on time uh, solves a lot of problems. Um, There's just so many examples that I can think of. But anyway, number 17, if you're going to do something, do it well. Uh, You know, commit. If you agree to do something, you know, really, really do it well. Not only does it feel good to to do it well, but, you know, it's more impressive that way. (laughs) Again, we're getting into the more less important tips, but... But I think that this is a good one, you know, it's like, um, if someone asks you to give a talk or if some, if, or if you're writing a paper that you consider to be kind of a bigger deal, or you go to graduate school, just in general, instead of just half-assing something, you know, really commit to it and, and dedicate yourself to certain things to do it well, um, things that you care about, um your marriage. If you're going to be married, do it well, you know, commit to it. Say, okay, I commit myself to doing this as best as I can um, because this thing is important to me. Uh, I, when I see people do that, I, it's, I, and when I do it myself, which I don't do it all the time, it provides so much meaning to me. It's like, I want to do this. You know, when I, when I got my doctor, when I got my master's and my doctorate, I really committed to it. I said, "I really want to do this well. This is important to me." And so, whenever I got an assignment, I didn't complain in my head. I said, "I wanted to do this, and I am going to do it as best I can." And I, 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 I wonder how good I can do this thing. You know, just that that kind of commitment to leaning in to you know, I am this is me, and this is my commitment to this action, and and um, and I I want to do it well, and I am and I am not going to cut corners. Um, because it provided so much meaning to me I, with this podcast. I, I do that all the time. Um, like with this, um, question from Ruben about 20 things, I could have just talked off the top of my head, but instead I was like, eh, you know, let's commit to this. Let's, let's take some notes. Let's think about it a while. Let's really make sure that you get a good night's sleep, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Number 18 is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Perfectionism is the worst it's paralyzing and mistakes are wonderful. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, quips and quotes from figures about, you know, I learned from my mistakes and mistakes are the best learning tool or something. And it's all true. Um, you know, our, our fear of not being perfect is paralyzing and keeps a lot of us back. Um, a lot of the things that I enjoy about my life I at some point had to say to myself, "Don't worry about making a mistake. Don't worry about making a fool out of yourself. Don't worry about putting your foot in your mouth. Don't worry about make you know not being perfect. Um, because if you worry about that, you'll you'll just it'll never happen." Umberto, bless his heart, he is a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to music, and he is he, him and I have he and I have been writing and recording music with others and by ourselves since high school. I think he's been recording since high school, but you know, long time. And I have distributed dozens of CDs and cassette tapes and, you know, Spotify albums. I, I just, cause, cause in my head, I'm like, it's never going to be perfect. My music is, you know, it's never going to be perfect. And I'd rather, uh, record it and put it out there and have it be flawed than to have it sit in my closet or my computer for the rest of my life without ever sharing it with other people. Mm -hmm. Whereas Berto is um, more perfectionistic and he'll, and he, unless something is absolutely perfect, he won't release it. And as a result, he's only released one item well, too, because one of them was with me, and probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for me. Now, I'm not a better person than Berto, but I, in a lot of ways, he's a better musician and a better singer and a more prolific writer and this kind of thing, better producer. So it has nothing to do with skill. It just has to do with this one aspect of just like, fuck it, I don't care if I make a mistake or fuck it, I don't care if it if this is if this is flawed. Uh, at some point, I gotta I gotta put it out there. I gotta do it. So. Um, you know, it's the same goes for if you're a student in graduate school, it's like, fuck it, this paper is not perfect, but I'm turning it in. I don't care. (laughs) You know, it's as good as it's going to be to this moment. I'm turning it in. Um, so don't be afraid to make mistakes. 19 is find a mentor. Mentors are extremely important. And, um, I have heard that millennials are better at finding mentors or better at valuing mentors and, Generation X, Generation Y, my generation are not good at finding mentors because we were latchkey kids and um, were raised to be super independent and not reach out for help, whereas millennials are better at this. And so maybe this will change. But a lot of people, including myself, don't recognize or when I was younger, didn't recognize the importance of having a good mentor, having someone to really lead the way, give you support. Uh, give you practical resources, guidance, a soothing relationship. These are all very important things to life in general. I mean, not only just in career, but also just in life, just having someone who can put things in perspective for you, whether that's a therapist or a religious leader or an older brother or older sister or whatever, or younger brother, younger sister, so- someone that um, you just look up to that can help you. And the last one, number 20, is have friends have friends, prioritize friends, reach out, don't, um, you know. So the vast majority of Americans wish they had more friends. And many Americans have no friends. Uh, Many Americans do have very close friends, which is great. But a lot of people don't, and most people think that they uh, wish they had more friends. And the reason why, and this surprises people, because a lot of people think that they're alone in wanting more friends, you know, they'll be like, ah, everyone else seems to have friends, or they don't seem to care. Almost everyone wishes they had more friends. Whether that is someone they can get a beer with, or someone they can watch TV with, or someone they can chat with, or someone they can do a podcast with, someone they can go to a ball game with, someone they can knit with, someone they can do a coloring book with, or go fishing, or vent with, or talk about their spouses with, or whatever. It, it's very important. And After about the age 25, friends takes work. You know, when you're younger, we're spoiled as young people because friends are, they're just like automatic for most people, not everybody, because we're stuck together and we don't have anything else to do. You get older, you get careers, you get families, you get other things, you know, other responsibilities and, and. You don't, you know, when I was really young in my early 20s, I lived with my friends. You know, I, I would live with five of my friends in a house. And so we were always together. Older, you have, as you, especially as you get, you know, into your 30s and 40s, it requires basically making appointments, right? You have to say, Oh, when can you get together? Oh, how about Friday? Well, I'm kind of busy, you know, so you, you have to, you have to make appointments actually to interact with your friends often. And what I find that a lot of people, Suffer from, including myself, but I try to overcome it. Is this worry that you're going to get rejected? You know, so you reach out and someone's like, "I'm busy," and you're like, "Man, you know, I'm so tired of reaching out to everyone, and everyone's always busy." And so, fuck it, you know, I, I have no friends, and I don't need friends. But what I decided a long time ago was, you know, again, I have a limited time left on this planet, and I'm not going to sit around wishing I had more friends and feeling sorry for myself. I'm going to ask people to hang out. And if I get nine rejections, if I ask 10 people and I get nine rejections, I get one friend that night, you know, and I'm not going to worry about those nine rejections. I just don't care. Like I'm going to choose not to care about those nine rejections. And maybe, and most of them probably aren't rejections. They're just like logistical Uh, barriers that they're just busy and they can't Um, and, or they're anxious or depressed and they're just kind of lumps on a log. I mean, I've been that way when I'm in a bad mood and someone invites me out, I'm just like, nah, can't don't I'm too busy or something. So there's lots of reasons why people will reject you if, when you reach out to them, but um, it's, it's incumbent on you. If you don't have friends, consider it your job to ask 10 people and be rejected by nine. That, that is the approach. That that I recommend people have instead of saying reach out to your friends, because because it's like well people start reaching out and then they get rejected. No, the important thing is is to reach out to a whole bunch of people and know that a, most of them are not going to have time for you for one reason or not like you or whatever for you know and just not hang out. And so, um, so having friends and cultivating that. And then once you have good friends and people that you've developed a sort of dependency on each other, then the relationship just kind of sustains itself and you don't need to constantly reach out to them because they just naturally want to hang out with you, if that makes any sense. Anyway, so let's review. Let's go in backwards order. Have friends. Find mentors. Don't be afraid of mistakes. If you're going to do something, do it well. Be on time. Don't be afraid of change. Go to therapy. Learn stuff. Balance your vices. Get angry. Don't consume popular news. Question culture. Do stuff. Say yes to stuff. Contribute to society. Manage your time that you have left on this planet. Increase your self-awareness. Have gratitude. Love thy neighbor Optimize your attachments and get good sleep. Well, let me know what you think about those. Email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or a comment or whatever. Let me know what you think about these various things. I'd be curious. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. <laughs>